Hi, before we start this episode of Synaptic, I would like to add in a clarification about what you are about to hear. In this episode, Andre Fenton discusses work done in the labs of Richard Huguenier and Robert Messing. Fenton points out that by grinding up whole brains as a standard to measure protein expression, one would miss seeing the increased presence of PKC iota lambda if it is selectively expressed in memory-related brain regions. PKC iota lambda is a molecule that in PKM zeta knockout mice increases to compensate for the absence of PKM zeta, which is necessary for long-term potentiation and long-term memory in wild-type mice, but not in the knockout mice that use a PKC iota lambda dependent mechanism. However, in the Huguenier Labs paper titled, PKM zeta is not required for hippocampal synaptic plasticity, learning and memory, the group did indeed look for long-term potentiation-related changes in the CA1 region of the hippocampus, as shown in supplementary figure five of their paper. So please keep that in mind when the conversation touches on this topic later in the interview. Okay, now on with synaptic. The transmitter. Welcome again to Synaptic, our podcast that explores the people, the research, and the challenges of the neuroscience field. This is episode 10 of Synaptic. We've reached double digits now. I'm very proud. My name is Brady Huggett, and I'm the host of this show. All right, let's go back to 1981, and let's go to Toronto, Canada, and let's go specifically to De La Salle College, Oakland's, as it's called. But don't be fooled by the name, however. De La Salle is actually a Catholic school for grades 5 through 12. Anyway, it was founded in 1851, and it operated as an all-boys Catholic school until 1994, when it made the decision to move to co-ed. Now, in 1967, a man named John Hunt began teaching English at De La Salle. Mr. Hunt, as the students called him, eventually came up with a routine for the first day of school. He organized the classroom desks into long rows, and as the students filed in to start his class, he'd watch them fill the seats. And when they were full, he would begin to speak. He would tell the boys to look around. He would tell them they were in an institution of learning, sitting in rows, one after another. They were, he said, ordinary people. Extraordinary people, he said, were not doing things like this. Extraordinary people were out engaging in the world. And we are going to read about some extraordinary people in this class, he said. But you are not extraordinary people. And if you want to be an extraordinary person, then you will need to get out of these rows and go out into the world and engage with it. Now, John Hunt is still associated with De La Salle, actually. But when Mr. Hunt gave this performance in 1981, Andre Fenton was one of the boys sitting in those rows. And the speech had quite an effect on Andre, there on his first day of ninth grade. That's today's guest, by the way, Andre Fenton. Mr. Hunt's speech sank into Andre's heart because Andre did not want to be sitting in rows, shoulder to shoulder with everyone else. He indeed wanted to be out in the world, and he wanted to learn about it. He wanted to master it, as he told me. We talked about that on this podcast, and we talked about what Andre did and where he went after high school to try and master the world, to try and understand it. And we talked about his upbringing, both in Guyana and Toronto. 
And of course, we talked about PKM Zeta and memory. So all of that coming up in the next hour and a quarter. I interviewed Andre on December 19th, 2023. It was a clear day, but chilly and windy. I met him at his office in the New York University Center for Neural Science, and I set up mics across his desk. His office has a whiteboard and some full bookshelves, and it also has a window. So even though we were several floors above the streets, you can still hear some sounds of traffic as we talked. I found this conversation to be stimulating, to say the least. I felt like I could have kept firing questions at Andre for another couple of hours. But I didn't do that. I shut the mics off and let him go back to running his lab, as a, as a good guest should. I, um, I know when it's time to go. But anyway, let's start here, where Andre and I are talking about the way NYU functions as a college inside a very busy city. So here's your synaptic episode with Andre Fenton, starting right now. It doesn't feel like there's a campus, and it, it's, I think, if not by design, by commitment, we understand that there is no campus. The campus is New York City, and we're embedded in New York City. Perfect. So literally, I say it quite often, you know, when you leave this building, you are in New York City. Like, whatever's happening on the sidewalk when you leave the building, that's New York City. It's not NYU anymore. I actually really like the idea that when you leave the door, right, you're in New York City. You're in the community of people who are not engaged and actually don't care about what you do. And yeah. it's your job to engage them. We were just talking about this the other day, how in a lot of towns or cities, I think the college campus kids are kind of a focus. I mean, sometimes right around this block, you go, oh, those are NYU kids. They'll have a sweatshirt on or something. But they step out the door and they just blend into the city. They disappear almost. Yeah. And I like it because it forces you to think about the city. Hmm. not a, And the city is defined by other people. So you leave the, the, the building and there's a homeless man yeah. in camp right out front. Yeah. Okay? You can't wish for that person to go away and have it happen. Like that that person belongs there as much as you do. You're forced to accept or be angry, but you must engage yep. with with that. Whether you like it or not. You can't just, you know, say I'm disconnected from it all. Huh. Okay. Um, so let's let's go way back. Mm -hmm. Right. I do know actually I know where you were born. Right? You're born in Guyana. Yeah. But I don't know what part of the country so I was born in Guyana, yeah. um, in Georgetown, which is the I capital. I wondered, yeah. The, you know, my family, my mother's um, side of the family uh, grew up in an area called the Pomeroon, which is a place I've never been. Mm -hmm. um, fairly um, simple place. Um, they were farmers. Uh, I believe my grandfather brewed coffee or something like that. It's very interesting. Um, they, um, he became friends with the local tax collector, mm -hmm. um, and the local tax collector, um, uh, his name was Reggie Moore, um, who came from the big city and, um, you know, engaged with my grandfather and grandmother and said, you know, you have these, you know, nice, um, uh, daughters that, you know, they had a family of five, um, they should really go to school somewhere. Um, 
you know, they should go to the city to go to school. And um, that wasn't a real possibility in the Pomeroon because, like, how would you move them to Georgetown uh -huh. and, like, afford that and, and so on. And um, it ended up being the case that, you know, because they became friends and so on, that Reggie said, you know, why don't you send your daughters and they can live with my family. I have a bunch of daughters, too, I think two daughters one is my godmother and so my mother and her sister did that and um, that moved them to Georgetown and my grandmother then followed uh -huh. and that's how our family ended up in Georgetown and being interested in you know education and things which have led to you know my career right so of there were five daughters you said there were five children five children two daughters, yeah. and two daughters uh, yep two were daughters, they the, three sons the two youngest um, they were the, uh, the second and third of the five children. So the, the focus on the daughters was, it's like the, the boys are going to stay here and work, and the, the daughters need something to do, so they should go to school? Or I don't even know that it was how it was, how it was framed, but it was easy for the daughters. Daughters are easy to move around. Uh -huh. you, you know, one, you tell them what to do, um, and two, you know, they were the way the story is told they were you know nice looking daughters so uh -huh. why would you leave them you know out here on the farm right? yes all right um okay so the two daughters go in to stay with us i mean they know the man but a stranger kind of in his family yeah and, and they so school. they've become you know part of that family in, yeah. in many in many ways they you know act as sisters they um grew up together they're you know, adolescent high school years were were spent together. So, and, what what age are we talking when they first moved to the city? But I would imagine, um, you know, when you're about thirteen or fourteen, oh, okay. something like that. Yeah, like yeah. when you go to high school. You know, I see. That, okay, that kind of thing. And there weren't great schools out by the coffee farm. No. In fact, their education might have just ended right around then. Very likely. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so they go in and start this kind of educated life. Beyond high school, or just do they? Finish? No, just a, just a high school. And your um, your grandmother follows them in. My grandmother follows them in. Um, your grandfather stays on the farm, and eventually joins my grandmother. Uh huh. Um, as a, you know, because she decided things, and so he he uh, went. He's a very interesting man. I didn't speak to him. He you know, wasn't a vocal person, but he was. He had a fair amount of gravity. He ended up being. Um, like a staff sergeant in the um, in the uh, army huh. in, in uh, uh, Guyana, and Guyana is not known for its military might, as you you so can it's imagine. It's a small country, right? Um, so he basically um, ran their their um, you know military um, personnel and the military farm kind of thing, and so on. But um, he had a lot of discipline um, yeah. about him, and a certain you know. Um, uh, large, uh, but quietude about him. Like, and I like a that. like a big presence. Yeah, but a, but a quiet. But a presence. quiet presence. Yes. Yeah. So when that happens, so I grew up with him and my grandmother. They you know raised their children in in um, uh, in Georgetown. Um, my mother gets married. Um, probably the first of of her siblings to to be married to my father, um, and. Um, you know, their marriage doesn't last very long. Huh. Um, and my mother decides to move to Toronto because that's what you do if you are in Guyana. It's kind of a not a great place to, um, you know, not a lot of opportunities there. So two things. 
your parents get married don't last very long but in the, somewhere in there they have you obviously if they're your yes. parents so that so um like how old was your mother do you know when when you were born she must have been 44 so 23 yeah not not all that young actually right mm-hmm. not like a teenager or anything like that yeah, 23 uh and then so do you know your father yeah i don't know i didn't grow up with him yeah i know him you know um I know him more of a as a friend than a as a parent. Yeah. Um, you know, we we talk now. We talk more than ever before. As I was growing up, we did not talk very often. They had a very, I think, interesting arrangement um, uh, upon yeah, divorcing. Yeah, and and that arrangement actually is very meaningful um, and and helpful to me. And so that arrangement was my mother would take care of me and not ask for or need anything or expect anything from my father. And not in a, in a sort of bitter way, but mm-hmm. in, a, in a transactional way. And so I grew up never hearing anything bad about my father, never being disappointed by him. It wasn't like I expected him to yeah. show up and he didn't, um, which was the case um, quite often and with some of his other kids. And so I didn't grow up with any sort of resentment or particular expectations of him. That's why I just he's just this adult friend. Did he stay in Georgetown? He stayed in Georgetown for a time. Then he moved to uh, London and, and then eventually uh, um, Jamaica. All right. So then you really didn't see him. Yeah, because you guys went to Toronto. So at what, what age were you when, when your mother went to Toronto? I should say, too, you're the only just I'm a the, sibling. Yeah, yeah. the only... Uh, uh, child, um, I must have been around four, five, uh, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so from four or five ish, I was uh, living with my grandparents um, in Georgetown, and um, I joined my mother when I was seven. So then, I, I'm, as you said, you you mentioned your grandfather. You really got a lot of parenting from your grandparents. Yeah, I mean they they were very. Um, disciplined people <laughs> in in Guyana it's ordinary to to hit children for yeah. example um, in school you you know you learn your times tables with your hands out um, and the teacher has a cane that they would tap I have um, to think like looking back is that the right way to teach the times no. tables? I don't think so <laughs> no absolutely not but it does teach you presence of mind I, yeah. I, I absolutely remember in grade one learning to write cursive and having them do these exercises of writing M's, yeah. like series of M's in cursive. And the teacher standing next to me, you know, tapping the cane. And me realizing I need to focus on counting the bumps of M, right? right. For the so they're like actually, one, two, yeah. one, two, right. right? And not be distracted by the tapping. And she said, you know, you're going to get licks. Um, it did teach me to focus on counting the bumps in the M. Yeah. All right. So your mom leaves. She had. Or she, I guess. I guess the question is, why Toronto? So if if you're from Guyana, you basically, at the time, and I think currently, you know, if you can, you would go somewhere else because there are more opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah. You would go to Toronto, to New York, or to London. Those are the three places that people end up going. You know, like with most uh, immigrant stories, you go to somewhere where you know somebody yeah. um, that you can, um, you know, who you can lend 
and and be with um, at that you know when you leave the airport yeah um, and so I think that was the you know there was someone in Toronto my mother went to stay with them for a short period of time and then you figure out your way so what so in this three-year period she figured out her way got some sort of job got a place to live and then called for you yes in fact the funny story is um, <clears throat> when I was six she managed and uh, sent for me and I went with my grandfather and it was the first time you know I'd seen winter yeah I didn't know this but at the time I was told you know we're going to just see this place I wasn't told I was being taken there um, to be you know returned to my mother did you know your mother was there I knew my mother was there okay yes but we're gonna go visit your mom okay, we're gonna, gonna go visit your place. mom you know I'm six so you don't ask too many yeah. questions yeah. and so on and I am told that I decided that, you know, her apartment was too small. Like, one, there are no apartments in Guyana's. Everyone everyone yeah. has a house, even if it's a crappy house. It's yeah. a house. It has outdoors and, yeah. and, and so on. And so I um, apparently was not, you know, impressed by the living situation. And so, weirdly enough, um, and it tells you something about the character of my mother, um, she sent me back and worked harder (laughs) so that we could have a better apartment in the next year when I uh, when my uncle brought me so the idea was you were told you were going to go check this place out they actually were planning on that was you rejoining her but because you were so vocal about the things you didn't like she's like I got to do better that was that's the story I'm told that's a good story yeah yeah yeah. no I remember I don't remember that, but I definitely remember there were a number of really interesting things that happened in in that visit that I can remember. For example, I remember my first snowfall. And so, you know, there's snow and my mom had one of these, they were these one-piece snowsuits, right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. And so, with a hood. so on and I'm, I feel incarcerated in this thing but you know that's like yeah. how you survive the, yeah. Yeah. The, the winter right so we go out and you know I don't know what to do with snow um, and so she and my my uh, grandfather are standing around and um, you know he's wearing like three layers of pants or something like that so we're all just standing around kind of cold I'm in this thing um, probably a little big for me so I can't look around and you know, they say, like, do something with it. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I, I, my mother says, oh, you can make a, I guess, a snow angel. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember, like, lying down in the snow thinking, this is so dumb. Like, why would I want to lie here on the ground, you know, and, like, flap? I hope nobody, you know, sees me. me. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> but I'm doing it because that's what you do in this country with the snow. Absolutely remember the snowflakes, you know, falling on my face, me flapping and just thinking, this is like the most ridiculous thing I have to do. And I have to do this to fit in. Like, this seems... Do I have to know, do this every day? Yeah, like, how how, how long? Know, yeah. well, this just doesn't make sense. But I guess that's what one does here, right? And, and so that was the attitude I took when I came back, you know, a year later, I really tried to figure out how to fit in. Yeah. Even if it seemed dumb. So when you, a couple things, when you came back a year later, 
there was there was a bigger apartment and you said this is fine or you don't remember probably i i really don't remember um there was a different apartment yeah I'm confident about that yeah um at that point my i came with my uncle my mother's youngest uh, brother so he he also stayed in Toronto. Yes, and he came. Okay. He was he immigrated with yeah. me. He brought me and stayed with yeah. us, and yeah. you know lived with us for a number of years until you know he started his own life. All right, so you're like seven at this point, and you have a lot to adjust to. Not only the weather, obviously, and the snow. I mean, did you find yourself doing Canadian things? Did you skate, for instance? Did you play hockey? All these things. Oh, that are absolutely. You, you, you know, you to survive socially, you have to. You know, it, again, these are things I realized uh, much later in my life. But at the time, I learned to do all the things the other kids did. So they skated. They played baseball. Yeah. Um, for example, um, baseball, um, you know, what do you, lo- what do you know to do in Guyana? You know how to play cricket. Right. Um, um, very different sport, even though it seems similar to, to, to baseball. Um, so I would play, you know, in the schoolyard. Um, eventually, I needed a uh, baseball mitt, and I remember going with my my mother and um, uh, stepfather to uh, to the store to buy a, a baseball glove. glove. Yeah. And I was trying to explain to them that you know I always used a right a, a glove on my left hand, and they just that didn't make any sense to them. I said like I remember going through the the. Um, exercise where my stepfather said well which is your dominant hand which hand do you write with which hand is stronger right the answers are all right yeah. and so like that's the, the hand glove. that you get the glove for like, uh-huh. and you know and i didn't like... know how to explain like you you know you have to throw yeah <laughs> right yeah so i ended up getting a you know right right-handed glove which was obviously useless, yeah. and we, we weren't all that wealthy, so it basically meant you know I wasn't going to get another glove yeah. once I figured out how to articulate this. Um, so I you know didn't use the glove. You know, you yeah. continue to borrow the glove. Um, right, 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 um, and so on. I mean, did you you know? So I, we should say, Guyana's English speaking, right? So you spoke English. It is English speaking. You had an accent. It's a I'm sure. sort of Creole English, yeah. um, which you know is not. Uh, is not considered charming uh, yeah, uh, yeah. when you get to Toronto in those days. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's how I spoke. So it wasn't difficult to understand, um, you know, other people, but I definitely, you know, my job was not to be an outsider. Yeah. I wanted to fit in. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So that's how I, I played hockey. Yeah. I learned to skate. I pretty much learned to do, you know, everything, and I also got the sense... You know, baseball is a good example. So when you play baseball um, in the schoolyard, there are two captains, and they pick people for their team, right? So it definitely does not feel good to be the last person chosen. Yes, yeah. Um, and so you become not the last person chosen when you get good. So I understood, I learned, you know, um, that it, I did not want to be the last person chosen. So I got really good at many things. Um, and I would, you know, focus on how to get good at these things, including yeah. skating and playing hockey. And Canada's a pretty white country, but Toronto's an international city. Like, did you feel you fit in racially or not, or was that also an issue? Um, if I think back, it, it never, I never worried about it. There were a lot, there were never that many 
um, other black kids in yeah. my in my grade school even, and definitely not in my. I'm trying to think in grade seven and eight when I went to another school and in high school very very few like three as one of three or something like very yeah. um but what's really interesting is i never felt um that that mattered like i never felt oh i am different because of you know how i look or or um i felt early on that i was different because i didn't know how to play baseball or play hockey um but you know by the time i got to grade I would say four. I was a pretty, you know, cool kid. Canadian like, kid. Yeah. I was a Canadian kid who could, you know, who'd get chosen early. Sometimes I'd be the captain <laughs> to pick, you know, on, on these teams. I played whatever anybody else played, um, and I was pretty good at it. Hmm. Um, I was a good student. So, yeah, I felt I belonged. That was so right. Did I guess the question is, did other people feel that you did not belong? I guess that's the question. You know, I, I literally was not aware of it. But you're, you're saying that you also, not only did you do these things to fit in, but you got good at them. Did you play sports all the way through high school? Did you? Yeah, through high school, I, I wrestled you know, very competitively. competitively yeah. um, I played uh, volleyball and I even played uh, uh, football. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it wasn't just hockey or baseball. I mean, that's, a, that's like five sports. Did you identify yourself as like a jock, like I'm, a, like I'm an athlete? No, it's actually very interesting. I I more aspire to be, especially in high school, you know, you can't see me, but I'm not a, you know, I don't look like a jock. And, um, but I could understand how to develop technique. Mm -hmm. So, so when I played um, football, I was not, you know, not a big guy, but I learned how to tackle, for example. Um, so I often played defense. Mm. Um, and um, you know, I played tackle often because um, I could run and contain somebody and so on. So, I yeah, I thought I thought really hard about the things that I was doing and sort of understood them analytically mm. rather than intuitively. And then I could do them this is better the... than my you know physical being. Okay, um, so I know you go to McGill for college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, were you thinking like, did you have any affinity for science? when you were in grade school or did you think that you were going to go into sciences no um so this is related to my you know non-jock um uh, uh, uh character so i i was a good student mm -hmm. um <clears throat> not for any deep reasons other than i actually really wanted to understand things and i had an amazing grade nine teacher when i first went to high school his name's Mr. Hunt, and he taught English. And the way he started my high school career was very significant to me. I remember the first day of high school. This is an all-boys Catholic school. You have to mm. wear a jacket that doesn't fit right and so on. Um, I, th I remember it as my first period in high school ever. I, I don't know if that's actually true. Yeah. Um, but he arranged the class in these long rows. I think there were four rows and he did it as long as possible. And, and um, he didn't say anything when anyone you know came in and, and so on. He made us all sit there and he wandered up and down the, the uh, rows like exaggerating that we were there. And he said, look around you boys. Look at yourselves. You're in rows. <laughs> you are in an institution. 
Um, and he went on to say something along the lines of, and this really resonated with me, um, something along the lines of, you're ordinary, and that's why you're here. Okay. You're here in these rows in an institution because you're an ordinary people. If you want to be extraordinary, okay, you shouldn't be here. Extraordinary people aren't here. They're engaging in the world in some way. And we're going to actually read about people who didn't go to high school. Uh, these people, you know, engaged in the world and you're reading about them because that's what they did. Mm. And so because you're ordinary, it'd be really in your interest to control the things you can control, right? And learn what you can learn because you want to get out of these rows. <laughs> and the way out of these rows is to like understand the world that you're in. And that really resonated with me because, yeah. you know, I didn't want to be in the rows. Is he, what is he teaching? History? English. Oh, English. Yeah. So you're going to read like English books, fiction and things yeah, about we, novels. We, we read novels, you know. About like, people who've done extraordinary things. Like Joseph Conrad uh -huh. uh, resonated with me. We read a lot of, um, of Greek um, plays. Yeah. You can imagine why and destiny and things like that. Um, yeah, and he, he would make us write essays that were one page. You couldn't write more. Now I understand as an educator, he was lazy, but he was also editing really smart in that, yeah, you know, he would say, if, you, if it's more than one page, right, you're starting to lose points. So it better be extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you learn to craft every sentence because every word, right, mattered. Um, yeah, he was an extraordinary teacher. But what he really did for me was inspire me to want to learn about the world that I lived in so that I could master it. Like huh. that was the, the way it was, was framed, right? If you want to just if you want to do more than exist in this world you need to understand what's going on around it not just in your little domain but like everything about it and nothing is off the table to being interesting yeah he, he does sound like a great teacher i mean i'm getting inspired right now i mean it's just like that's a great way to like especially for young minds like that to yeah. present the world right yeah did you think you wanted to be an english professor or teacher or no I no. I wanted to. I wanted to be like Joseph Conrad. I wanted to go yeah. out in the world and like find out about it and like make my way in the world in whatever way I would. Yeah. Um, in fact, I never imagined I would be an academic. You know, my my parents didn't go to college, so mm -hmm. they didn't know how to advise me to go to college, and nobody thought to, you know, give any advice and so on. And in in uh, uh, Toronto and Canada, the way it worked at the time was in Ontario, I guess, for each province, you, you know, filled out an application and there were, you know, three boxes and you said one, two, and three, and you named the universities, you ranked the ones you wanted to get into, one, two, and three. And so I was thinking, you know, what would my major be? And not properly understanding the system, I was a very good student. I was the, the class valedictorian. Oh, um, okay. So, and yeah. so I remember thinking, okay, I have no idea what I want to do, and nobody like told me I had to do any particular thing. I think my parents wanted me to be a doctor because all immigrant kids should yeah, be doctors, doctors lawyers, right. or engineers. Um, <clears throat> and I put biochemistry. Why? 
I had no idea what biochemistry was. I knew it, was, it looked like biology and uh -huh. chemistry, uh -huh. um, but it was uh, one of the hardest majors to get into. And so this one, two, three, you just you ranked them by what you your your preferences were. And did you have McGill at the top? No, McGill is a different province. So that's the unusual uh -huh. thing. One was University, probably of Toronto. Western University in Queens, those were the three. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for some reason, I also applied to McGill. I can't honestly remember the reason. It's not that I knew McGill was, I knew McGill's was a good school. Yeah. But I wanted to escape the rose. I wanted to go out in the world and, like, find out about it. And so, it just seemed like a. It was a French place. Um, seemed good, and it was different. And I, I think you know, in hindsight, I wanted to like. Now I knew how to be in the world. I wanted to go and like start over as me in the world. And it was easier to do that, you know, in this you know different province. It felt like oh, I'm going, you know across the Atlantic mm -hmm. to, to, you know, the new world. Mm -hmm. That's how it felt. So uh, you're, you're planning on studying biochemistry then at McGill? What's funny is I actually studied English and philosophy when I got to McGill. So I ended up living in a rooming house and not, not even applying for or trying to live in a dorm, right? Um, and I was very excited to find a place to live. Like I went and I like negotiated a, a room in a rooming house. Like, <laughs> you know, and I went to McGill with a trunk. I like, I literally had a trunk. Like a steamer trunk. <laughs> a yeah. steamer yeah. trunk that I bought um, and so on. Yeah, so that, that was sort of how I landed in, 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 the McGill, in the McGill ghetto. And the people that lived in the rooming house were my friends rather than the regular freshmen you know, students. So, so you're living with adults. I was living with adults. You know, there was one other freshman, Alex Chapel, who's a close friend of mine, still is. Um, he became a filmmaker. You know, I was living with an Iranian uh, refugee uh, who's, you know, who was not there to go to school. Um, he helped me realize what a privilege I yeah. had to be able to go to school. Yeah. And Nick, he was a he was a uh, a master's uh, student in in English, and like he would mm. read Beowulf in old English and so on. And this was like the most exciting thing to me because these people were engaging in ideas, yeah. right? Yeah. No one was like doing anything for a job or a career. Like it never occurred to me to you know do something to get paid through university. I yeah. was just there to learn, you know, to learn about anything deeply. At, at some point though, because uh, I know a little bit about your path, like by the time you finished McGill, you, you definitely were interested in neuroscience. I mean, you had somehow narrowed that down to... I... <laughs> so what, what happened in my, somewhere I guess in my sophomore year, I was supposed to go declare a major at some point. Yeah. Um, I had an appointment with an academic advisor it was going to be English, and I met someone, um, I can't remember who, on the way there, my suspicion it was um, um, a, a girl, mm -hmm. um, and I ended up having coffee with that person and uh, missing my appointment. And yeah, that didn't seem like a big deal to me. 
and in the interim, before I made the next appointment, um, in my biology class, I learned about um, neurobiology. I learned about the uh, uh, the Jerry Levin experiment, what the frog's eye tells the frog's uh, brain. Yep. And that blew my mind. Um, you know, I'd been interested in philosophy and, and English, frankly, because I wanted to understand how I understood the world and why my understanding was subjective. I, I deeply, from my immigrant experience, knew that the way I understand the world is not the way everybody else understands the world. And that's why it was so important for me to sort of figure out how things work so that I could mm-hmm. manage that. So, so this is this experiment. So, I do know this experiment. This is where a frog can uh, would not see dead flies. It would only see living flies. So it was somehow triggering flies. on moving flies, right? Mm-hmm. And but the flies are there, of course. But in its reality, it doesn't know that they're there. And you're thinking, yeah, I, I get this now. So you're thinking like my own perception of reality is different from other people's. In fact, there's probably things that I don't know that other people do know because everyone has a different perception. Yeah, in fact, or, or I, I went, I understood it as how do you even know? Like, how do you know how to be a good person? Like, uh-huh. how do you, should you try and be rich or should you try and be a pauper and be enlightened? Um, like, how do you know? How do you know what is the right way? Um, all of these things are attractive. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, how does one know? So I was always interested in, in that. In that question. In that question, always. But this one is specific to like the neurobiology, for instance. Well, what I learned is that you couldn't answer those questions in the philosophy classes. I learned that very quickly. Mm. But with an electrode, you could actually figure out okay, that the frogs only know about moving flies. So you're <laughs> like, like that's like how you could do it. Right, there's no answer in philosophy. We could talk for end in circles, but with biology, we can start to find some you answers. You could measure something. And, and you could measure it because I, I, I understood that the reason for that wasn't somebody's opinion. It was yeah. because the frog was designed that way. Like that was the design of the frog, and I have a different design. Another thing that always fascinated me, and you know, I went to an all boys Catholic school. Yeah. So there was a, a substantial spiritual context. I was never religious, but I was thought to be religious and thought to be spiritual, but I wasn't really. I just, I was more of a humanitarian, and that was misunderstood as being Christian. Christian, yeah. right? But the, I was fascinated with the idea of spirit and, um, you know, and that there might be ghosts, for example. Mm-hmm. I had ghost-like experiences as a, as a child. Um, and, you know, and throughout my, my life. And so all of these things were like, is that real? It's not, it doesn't make sense that it's real, and like, but it's a real experience. I had also, um, in at McGill in the early days being there I discovered these sensory deprivation tanks yeah. I would go and like float and I would hallucinate um, when you're right when your mind is let loose of all sensory it, it'll do what it's going to do yeah I, I think of it today as oh I got to watch the dynamics of my nervous system like I could experience the dynamics of them when set free from the sensory stimuli but there were you know I would have visions and 
um, experiences that I knew came from inside me, right? There, and so on. So all of this was very fascinating to me. I gotta ask one, one thing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me one credible, not credible, but in, in your mind, I guess, credible ghost, ghost story? Where something <laughs> happened to you, you thought, I can't explain this. Oh, I can tell you several. So, when, th- this one's sort of boring, but uh, I'll, I'll, you know, early on, when, when I was a kid yeah. um, living with my parents, um, I, they tell me this, and I remember vividly. This is um, Guyana you're talking about. This is Guyana. Yeah. When, so I must have been about three. Yeah. I would see a man in the wall, um, sort of in the living room wall. You know, very large man's head. He had kind of a goatee. Um, and he would laugh, okay, not in a sinister way, but he would laugh, and I would like tell my parents, who would get very agitated, and their interpretation was like, I wanted to like go to my grandparents' place. My current interpretation, and I, I, I know what the guy looks like. If I was a better artist, I could. In sketch fact, it. I've tried to sketch uh, this, um, you know, in my my uh, early college years and so on. You know, my interpretation of that is that, you know, my my parents were fighting or, or whatever, and this was a, um, this was me feeling anxious about that situation, and they probably interpreted it similarly, like yeah. he wants to escape and goes yeah. to my grandparents' place. So I was, was prepared, if you will, for, you know, seeing, seeing things and, and so on. So, as a really close friend of mine um, in high school, Nathan Orlando, he and I were both misunderstood as being religious. Um, Nathan and I, you know, became interested in, you know, what does spirit mean and so on. And so, as an example, his, um, the boiler room in his house, you know, very good friends, I would sleep over there every so often. There was an old woman that lived down there. And I remember her, you know, coming and standing over me, you know, and sleeping in her room. And again, it wasn't frightening. That was what was so interesting, right? It scared it me now to hear that story. It wasn't frightening, but she would come, I would, and I would, like, you know, be sort of sleeping. And I'd know, like, in my mind, the point was, don't panic, because this is really interesting. Imagine if there really were a spirit world. Like, if you knew for sure yeah. <laughs> that there was an afterlife or that there were spirits, I think we would live very differently. Yeah. So yeah. I was never afraid of that. I was, you know, I really wanted to know, like, you know, what is, what is actually meaningful and important? Like, this, everything oh, hangs man. on that. Yeah. But to be clear... There was an old woman in the basement. She was standing over you. You weren't imagining that. You would wake up and she would be yeah, down yeah. the boiler room. I, I, I would, you know. So what I, I learned a few things. One is you have to be receptive to have these experiences. Yeah. So you have to, one, not panic. Um, for example, in the, in the sensory deprivation tanks, I, I went, I don't know, 25 times or so probably with 20 different people. No one ever went twice because they didn't, they felt very uncomfortable. I was so intrigued by this. How, how long is, is You do it for an the, hour and a half. An hour and a half, okay, whoa. Right. Um, some people like open it so that it's not dark. You can ask for music to be turned on. 
it felt the same way. Like when your mind throws up experiences that you know are not quote unquote real, it can be disturbing. Mm. And your instinct is to make it go away. And I had learned to be intrigued by this. And so learn to like, you know, sit with it and be mindful of it, Inclu- you know, including with the old lady. Um, I I must have like twenty different stories. Some ex- some happen across oceans and two people having the, the same, same experience, but from different points of view. Many of these things, but the the key is you have to be you know, willing to have them. Um, which means willing to, you know, just watch what's happening in your mind and without like stopping it. Does it, it also means like being willing to be uncomfortable with it, right? Like yes. some people will be like, "This is terrifying. I don't know who this old woman is leaning over me in a boiler room." But <laughs> yes. you're like, "No, I'm I'm going to just sit with this and see what happens." Same thing in a sensory deprivation tank. Whatever's happening, whatever's bubbling up. If you don't like what's happening, you have to just sit with it. Yes. Wow. And I have always been that person I'm really okay being a, in fact I I was trying to explain you know to my kid recently that when I'm uncomfortable I do more of that more of what's opening. making me uncomfortable oh I see what you mean All right. many people you don't turn away from is to run away from what's uncomfortable I believe it's important to go into what's uncomfortable this is the hardest question you're going to get in this interview why are you like that do you think it has anything to do with i don't know being an immigrant where you're forced to you know you have this brand new world and you're like this is all uncomfortable i have to find a way to survive this i am now sure it's because i'm an immigrant Ah. because the instinct is to stay in your community like stay in where you're comfortable stay in where you're um it's not even comfortable stay where you're valued right rather than go to where you're not valued right stay where you are accepted rather than go where you'll be rejected right like it's very it's very stark but you end up in a bad place if you don't do it like i learned that so <clears throat> also when you do do it and you survive it, and you've changed. Yeah. Right. I mean, you that's... get you get you get benefits from that. Yeah. That you don't if you. I mean, the easiest the way I really learned this. It took me a long time, but all boys high school. Right. Okay. So we had school dances. I helped organize some of them and so on. And so you actually have to ask someone to dance that you may not know. If they're attractive to you, you have to ask, so this isn't the right song, you know, oh, they're dancing with somebody else right now, like, you know, there's always a reason not to be vulnerable, and it's uncomfortable, who wants to be rejected, right? But the consequence of that is you never dance with somebody, right? So you get to not be rejected, and you get to feel comfortable, if you will, but you also never Never get get to dance with anyone or meet them. So it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Like if you actually want to meet somebody, you actually have to be vulnerable or willing to be rejected. Okay, this is super fascinating, honestly, because uh-huh. I, we'll come back to this. So you finish McGill. You do this really interesting thing, by the way, I thought, is you go to the Czech Republic. 
for I guess it was a master's. What we what exactly was that? No, I went to the Czech Republic because it was interesting. Um, it was 1990 when I graduated, and so in 1990 I had a, a girlfriend who was um, uh, came from New York, and um, yeah, I didn't know how to afford living in New York or moving to New York. Wouldn't be able to work there. She couldn't stay in Canada, and we wanted to stay together. You know, just sort of casually. So, and I wanted to do something interesting, and so I looked around the world, and what was interesting was Eastern Europe yeah. in 1990. And so we agreed we would go to Eastern Europe, and we had a skill we could teach English. Okay, and so I went to the same professor who gave the lecture on the uh, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain, um, Ron Chase. So I went to him. Why? Because I was a uh, vegetarian at mm -hmm. the time, in fact, a vegan. And um, he worked on snails. Um, and I could only ever imagine it being you know, ethically sound to work on an invertebrate. And so he studied snail brains. And I um, went to him um, and said, you know of an interesting laboratory. Not because I wanted to be a scientist. I just wanted a way to go somewhere. Um, in an interesting part of the world. And he said, oh yeah, you might want to think about the about Prague. Um, there's an interesting guy there, Jan Buresh. He wrote those books and he pointed to yeah. a, um, a series of, of books that were Jan's. Um, and so I thought, oh, one must be famous, writes books. Right, yeah. Um, and two must be a snail biologist because why would a snail biologist know about anything else yeah right um so i assume jan was a snail biologist he was in prague super interesting they just had a revolution like communism is falling yeah. this is like what you read about you know a giant way of living is now in turmoil like that's an interesting part of the world you want to go see you know how that works out uh, so never, that's how I got to Prague. Never bombed in World War II. <laughs> so it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yep. So we, you know, I ended up writing to Jan saying, I can do anything. I'm super cool. I'm very smart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and anything he, he you know, you I up. know how to yeah. do. I mean, I'd be embarrassed to write that today, but I it wasn't worked. at the time. And so, yeah. And he said, you should come. And so I went to Prague. Um, and he is the person who's responsible for me being a scientist because I finally understood what a scientist's life could be, mm. and that was very attractive to me. Okay, this is it. Now I'm going to be a scientist. So I'm going to go what, apply what for a PhD. So what happened was Jan had a political life yeah. um, and uh, was you know, kicked out of the Communist Party. Um, there's a whole story behind that. But basically, he wasn't allowed to, to leave... Um, uh, leave the country and uh, go to the West. Um, and he was committed to building Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. um, he would not abandon it, although he, he absolutely had many opportunities. So what happened instead was that people came to visit him. So almost every week, someone, someone would come and he had a map of the world and pins in that map. It's like, you know, eight order hundred-ish um, pins in different places where, where people came from. And he had it on his wall. And what was amazing to me was that someone would come to visit him 
you know, once a week, once every two weeks from somewhere, typically the U.S. And because I spoke English, you know, natively, he would put me to be their host. I yeah. would meet them somewhere, show them around Prague and, and so on. And I would talk to them. And I was fascinated because I couldn't figure out why they were visiting him. Like, I couldn't figure out how they made money by visiting him, which is what I thought people did professionally. Mm. Like, why would you do yeah. this if you weren't going to make money yeah. or you're not trying to sell him anything, you're not trying to buy anything. You were just coming to talk to him because he's interesting. Like, that seemed amazing to me. Yeah, but I couldn't imagine anything could work that way. There's no, the economics of that don't make sense, really. Yeah. Um, but I understood that that was... He was a scientist. He was an academic. That's what people did. They came to talk about ideas. And so <clears throat> I thought, I want that. <laughs> and so I applied to SUNY Downstate. So when I got to SUNY Downstate, I learned to program and build tools, um, analytical tools and, and you know, uh, measuring electrophysiology tools. And I was always looking at how to make tools better and different, um, how to do spike sorting, everything, because mm -hmm. there was a culture of not rushing out to buy something. In fact, it was almost too much. I, I learned eventually, you know, the balance, there is a balance. You go and see what somebody else has to offer, and you modify that rather than do something, you know, to Nova. But it's yeah. amazing training to say, I want to do X, and then they say, well, from first principles, what do you do? And and you make that thing. So that had been my like style, um, both reinforced at, at Downstate as well as in Prague. When I went back to Prague in 19, just before finishing my PhD, Jan Buresh became a member of the National Academy. And so he, one of his rare trips to the, the uh, North America, he stopped off in New York and he said, you know, um, I have a deal for you. Um, I would like to try and rejuvenate the science in in Prague, in the Czech Republic. And if you will come finish your PhD and come back to Prague, you know, I'll give you the department, right? I'll make you the head of the department. Whoa. And and he put it to me in a way that at the moment resonated with what I learned in high school. He said, I can't give you money. Right? But if you actually know what you want to do, if you want an opportunity to actually do something, what you need is the opportunity. And we have people. I can give you people to do what you want to do. If you are in the American system, you will be able to get money. Okay? But here, you can actually do what you want to do. You get mm. to decide. And so the question is, do you know what you want to do? Okay? And so put that way I was like I'm gonna go for it I'm gonna go to Prague and like just see what there is because it's exciting yeah I get to you know decide um, what would be interesting to do and so on and there's sort of a cultural element to this how to rejuvenate the the, the science in, in Prague and you know never I never worried about not being Czech or fitting in or yeah. you know yeah, in fact that. these were all like positives yeah i didn't ha i could pretend not to understand the politics the politics yeah. and yeah. just like apologize yeah. um for for our actions and, and so on 
And so that's what I ended up doing. So what year are we talking about? This is 1998 is when I first went there. And by 1999, you know, I'd sort of established myself there. I became reasonably well known as a young person in, in, in Europe. Yeah. And I joined with <clears throat> um, the Mosers, um, uh, Richard Morris, uh, Mena Witter, um, Uwe Frey at the time, became Julie Frey, and our group, we all applied for a, one of these large European um, multinational grants and won that grant. And so that gave the laboratory an enormous amount of money from Czech standards. Yeah. So much that they, the, the administration didn't know what to do uh, with it. So it created all kinds of problems, but very interesting opportunities. And so the, the, the lab flourished. It, it really did. Um, so this was your first lab? Yeah, it was my first really, lab. Really, yeah. Um, I want to go, how did you meet Todd Sactor? <laughs> right, so this is, so in my understanding, and I think I, obviously I did not have this right, but I thought you were at SUNY Downstate. Sactor was doing, he was looking at molecules yeah. in the brain. So after Prague, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, how did you... So, oh, in, in about 2000 or so, I got a call one day saying, from Steve Fox, saying, I've been given permission to try and recruit you back to SUNY Downstate. And um, I met Bob Wong at a meeting, um, and I remember we were at the pool, and he was wearing glasses, so I couldn't, like, see him. And, and he said, you know, why don't you come back to Downstate, you know, as assistant professor? He said, but I have all of these, like duties, you know, rejuvenate Czech science, yeah. have all this money. Yeah. And he's like, you know, don't be stupid. Like, of course you can do that. Um, and I've thought, like, how do I have two jobs at once? And he said, well, as long as you monotonically increase your your activities in at SUNY Downstate, like, I don't see a problem. And so that was the decision in about 2000. And so I slowly... And, and monotonically increase my activities in, 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 uh, at SUNY Downstate and really fully moved there in about 2005. So mm. it took, oh, took a long time. some years. Yes. Yeah. But in that time, Todd was discovering PKM Zeta and his role in, in LTP. And so he would come down and you know, tell me about it. We would meet every so often. And um, you know, he would say, oh, you know, it, uh, PKM Zeta is um, you know, necessary. We could block it. And, for LTP, and he said to me, you know, I've, you know, say, when are you going to publish that? And he'd say, I want to publish a paper that says PKM Zeta is necessary and sufficient for LTP, you know, philosophically the highest um, uh, uh, evidence you can for something having a role, a causal role. Yeah. And so one day he did that, and, um, you know, it became pretty exciting, like, LTP is a model for memory, and, um, so I, you know, start to pay attention to this, and he would come and ask me. He said, "Now it's time to find out if this is important for memory. So how do you study memory?" And he would come, and he would say, oh, I, "I'm thinking about doing this experiment," and I would always say, "This is what's wrong with that experiment. You know, this task has this other interpretation, and so on." And every couple of months he would come, and eventually he. He would always ask these questions, and I would answer the questions. And he asked a really important question one day. Um, 
And the question is, you know, what would you do? Mm. And I said, oh, well, I would use the task I developed, this rotating arena task, for these reasons. Um, and um, then he said, we should do that experiment. And that's how we started our collaboration. So the PKM Zeta discovery ends up being a pretty big deal. I think science called it like a breakthrough of the year, and it got a lot of press coverage. And just you, you can understand why, because you know the mainstream media be like, "Oh my gosh, this thing is required for memory." You know what? A, what a great find. And, and and it looked like we could erase memories. And you That's could erase the, it. That was the story of the press. It's like science liked. fiction. Yes. Like we may be able to get rid of painful memories one day. This sort of thing. And so that exists for a while before, like Richard Huguenier and and Robert Messing, I think, came out. They both came out with papers in Nature that said actually that molecule is not required for memory, yes. right? And I'm just curious, as a scientist, what do you do then? You've been on this. <laughs> well, you've got this great paper. Yeah, yeah. What do you What do you do? Do you just put your nose back down? Well, okay, so it's you know. It's just before Christmas that these two papers come out. But with, as in all things in science, we knew about them. Um, and You'd we heard knew rumblings. They were coming. Yeah. In fact, we had been collaborating with Messing. So we had the Messing mouse. And we knew that the mouse could learn. Okay? Um, we had done our own experiments, and we knew that it made LTP. And so we confronted that problem long before the papers came out. And we had a theory for what would happen. If you understand the, the sort of evolution of, of these kinases, you know that there was a gene duplication and there's another kinase that's another isoform that's almost the same. In fact, the catalytic subunit is very, very similar um, and it has a regulatory domain um, which the M isoform doesn't have. And so we knew that you could, it could be compensated. Hmm. If you deleted it, it could be compensated by this iota-lambda isoform. So that was the presumption. And, you know, we said to uh, uh, Messing, like, you know, it's compensation. Like, you should, you know, check for that. You said this before he published. Oh, sure. Hmm. Yeah, because we had You've the same been, mouse. Right, right. <laughs> um, we had, he had shared the mouse with us. Um, but, you know, that was not the, the goal. Um, it was big news. And so, um, you know, when, when the Huguenier and Messing papers came out, it was kind of devastating. Like, many people to this day can't publish work on, you know, on PKM Zeta inhibitors, in particular ZIP, because of those papers and such. But okay. we knew what the answer was. And if you, if you remember... I was trained by my life circumstances not to be very attached to things, right? To be dispassionate about things. Uh -huh. So we just set out deliberately to do every experiment that was in those papers and then demonstrate how they got it wrong, if you will. Because the right answer is that there was this compensatory mechanism. And that's really easy for someone like me to think about, but hard for a biochemist. Why? Because I'm a systems thinker. Nothing is nonlinear. There's always feedback, right? There are multiple loops in the hippocampal system that you have to think about. Mm. If you do something here, there will be freedom to do something elsewhere, right? There's always competition and, and such things. And so it wasn't that hard to imagine 
that this is also happening biochemically and that we are not dealing with, you know, this causes that, but this makes a change in the system, the system adjusts to that change, and so you could find a compensatory change. And very quickly, we, you know, did the experiments to find out that, in fact, iota lambda had increased um, in that in that mouse. You, but by what mechanism is it going up? Oh, so that's, I said, this is one of the best things about science and, you know, in, in many ways in this story that science actually, the process of science prevails. It's super interesting, right? So why would it go up? How would it know How to go up? How would it know How, to yeah, go up, yeah. right? Does it have this intelligence? Well, here's where, you know, good intuition. Imagine that there was a binding partner for that kinase. Yeah. And that, and there is, it's called Kibra. And so the next chapter of this story is actually right now being reviewed, where it's the Kibra-Zeta interaction that turns out to be important. So Kibra is a structural protein on the postsynaptic uh, uh, side of things. And so in ordinary, you know, wild-type uh, LTP and, and learning, you, the model is you make some um, uh, pulse translational modification of iota lambda. There's some fat, uh, a fatty acid, or a, the diacylglycerol or calcium that opens up the regulatory domain so that the kinase domain of the iota lambda is available. Mm -hmm. And now it can be stabilized at Kibra and it does its job. Local translation happens there because of those synaptic events, and now PKM zeta gets manufactured. So you have translation with a delay, okay, at that site. Mm -hmm. Zeta has a 10-ish times greater affinity for the Kibra molecule compared to the iota lambda molecule, so it outcompetes it. Okay, so got it. Right. So if you don't have the competition, iota lambda can. Got it. Stay there, right? And so, isn't that gorgeous, right? That is so elegant yeah. and smart. Yeah. Like, biology's beautiful, yeah. right? And so, and because those two uh, isoforms actually come from a gene duplication, we now, you know, I've been looking at homology structures from the, the crystal structure. There's just a very small number of amino acids that have changed. So, Inhib it's now really hard to make an inhibitor that targets the catalytic subunit of the two molecules differentially, mm -hmm. which is what our initial um, molecule did. However, the, the Kibra uh, motif to which Zeta binds now becomes a peptide that you can make an inhibitor from, right? And so that's something we call, you know, Kibra Zeta. Um, uh, uh, interacting, pe I think we went with a, uh, a associated peptide, and so that becomes the, a new inhibitor. Okay, and so we have that, and another inhibitor we've called zetastat that allosterically binds to a little change in the um, in the PKM zeta molecule. So we now know that Kibra and zeta are interacting in. A beautiful way. But so when you, well, first off, you said that this was one of the best things that ever happened to you. This, the uh, Huguenier and uh, Robert's messing paper coming out. What, why? Because it forced you to re examine. It, we no. knew about Kibra. We knew about iota lambda. 
it told us they were important. Mm. It told us the Zeta story is not the end of this story. Something else is going on. Mm. There are a bunch of things that were curious. Uh, another example is Todd and, and Yadin Dudai did an experiment that I poo-pooed and said was stupid and didn't want anything to do with and just thought was dumb um, that they published in Science. I was wrong. Okay? Um, and uh, that experiment was, and it's what a biochemist would think, but a system scientist would never think this. And that is, they said, what if we increase the expression of PKM zeta in a part of the brain that has a weak memory? Mm. Okay? Should we strengthen that memory? Because PKM zeta is important for memory, so if we have more of it, we'll have more memory. Yeah. This is dumb to a system scientist. Like, that could never make any sense. In fact, we had done those kinds of experiments in the hippocampus. They're called saturation experiments. If you potentiate all the synapses or many of the synapses, you don't have more. You have inability to store information, right? Imagine you had a, a, a blackboard or a whiteboard and you wrote all over, all over yeah. it. You couldn't write anything else, write anything else yeah. right? Yeah. So this seemed like lunatic. Like what? How flimsy, you know, <laughs> what flimsy thinking? But that's what happened when they, when they did it. It enhanced weak memories. And so how to think about that? Well, it now makes total sense. If there was something, and we kind of knew that, you know, we, we could, we need to explain that one day. But if you imagine that there are a bunch of places that Kibra is marking, and that's where you want to put the PKM zeta, and it's the only places that it will go, then all you have to do is make more of it persistently, and they will go to the right place and yeah. have their action yeah. at the right place persistently. Yeah. Right? And so there, there are experiments like that and, and observations like that that we are now confronted with having to to explain in in this journey because there are many many directions that one one can go in yeah but it is a in my opinion it's what, how science can triumph it's not about you know Rick's a very popular guy it's true but the actual science will Wins win the out. day here yeah. and it showed that it did it forced us to do these experiments you know very recently <laughs> um, I was interacting with Rick and I you know I said I'm real like I thanked him um, it's been painful and it, it would have been easy it was uncomfortable mm. but I'm okay with being uncomfortable yeah we got to a better place but I feel like it, there was never a moment when that when those two papers came out where you thought ah shit we're wrong Let's think about something else. No, because, you know, it, it, I can explain that um, by explaining the process of discovery. So when we, you know, discovered that PKM Zeta was crucial for memory, um, there wasn't a eureka moment. So you do the experiment, and the first mouse shows that it doesn't remember the, the thing it's supposed to remember. Yeah. And you're a scientist, so you think, okay, there's... That's nice, but I can think of 15 ways that, that I could, could yeah. get that result without it meaning what I want it to mean. Yep. So you do the next <laughs> experiment. And the, by the time you're really convinced, you've been through so many checks, if you will, that you've moved on. right? And so this was sort of the same thing. We knew of the, the, the work was going to come out. 
we knew of the possibility of the of the compensation mechanism we had you know thought about it and done experiments to confirm this is a likely uh, outcome and so you're just sort of mad that everybody you know isn't like what about and and rick knew if you look in rick's paper very important he looks for the iota compensation oh he did he did he missed it in fact the way he missed it is a beautiful example again of how important it is to cross disciplines so any biochemist would do that the experiment the way he did um, which is you knock it out and then you grind up the brain the whole brain yeah. and you look at the lysate and you say let me do a western blot to see if there's any iota lambda compared to the wild type and there's no difference so you conclude there's no comp compensation yeah. This seems crazy to a systems neuroscientist. Why? Because I didn't expect memory to happen everywhere in the brain. It should happen in the hippocampus because this task is hippocampus sensitive. We spent a decade demonstrating that. And in subsequently, we've identified different synaptic compartments within the hippocampus, within a particular subregion of the hippocampus where the PCAM zeta and LTP, you know, potentiation occurs. So it would be bizarre to just think you would just en masse, you know, increase this thing. So the right experiment is to take out the hippocampus and look up. in the hippocampus, right? Yeah. And so what well, we ended up, so but we the, did that. The increase there is small enough that it would not show up in the entire brain. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Like, you know, yeah. the hippocampus is a small yeah. part of yeah. an yeah. entire brain. Yeah. So if you actually look, there's something like a 400% increase in the hippocampus. And the way we did the experiment was, I think, again, we need to be compelling. So we took for every mouse that got trained, we cut its brain in half. In one half, we removed the hippocampus. And in the other half, we ground it up. Mm -hmm. And in the same mouse's you know, hemisphere, you don't see an increase. And in the other one, a giant increase. Yep. All right, there's one thing I want to ask you, mm -hmm. and um, I'm so I'm I'm going back. I'm fascinated by this. I don't know if you call it seeking out, but whenever you are put in an uncomfortable position, you turn toward it. So you don't seek it out. You're not like, how can I make myself uncomfortable? But when when the moment arises, you decide I'm going to turn into that because that's the only way you get through it, learn from it, grow. Is that accurate? Yeah. In in your as your future your career moves on, are you looking for ways? to do science that makes you yes. do that? Like, how do you how do, <laughs> so you do that? So I do that all the time. I choose what we work on. And I, my main job in my lab, if you ask the people in my lab, they'll, they'll all confirm this. My main job is to get them to do experiments that will force us to have to change the way we think about something. And those are the only studies worth doing. Now, that is a outrageous statement to actually make. You know, these people need projects Papers. to train yeah. them on yeah. and, and so on. And you can't, you know, not everything is so easy to overturn or, or, or change minds, but that's our aspiration. And so my job is to pay attention to everything that's going on. I, I read about everything. And to listen for what 
beliefs people have that seem founded in tradition and founded in other beliefs mm -hmm. that there might not be explicit evidence for. And so I try to look for what are the biggest beliefs that people have that might not be might not have been tested properly so you see and a, then we do those experiments it's if somebody came up and said hey you know this paper came out and it shows this i think let's do a paper see if we can confirm that you're not doing i that. would never do those experiments uh, in fact that's my job my students always come and they say like did you see that thing and and i would we almost never want to do the next experiment um i rather say like what is that experiment? What are the beliefs? Literally, their beliefs, right? What are the ideas that is founded on? If we can find that those ideas are vulnerable, right, or based on things that haven't been demonstrated, LTP is one of those examples, LTP and memory. It's not obvious to me, although I study it, I, you know, my career is based on it. It's not obvious to me that LTP um, is important for memory. Mm. Um, I don't think the critical experiments have been done yet. We're trying to do them. And frankly, we've done some modeling and we've started those experiments and it's uncomfortable. The answers are uncomfortable, but that's how we learn. I, and I'm struck by like, that's also what Richard Huguenot was trying to do. He's like, I don't think that, that yeah, right? So that, that, yeah. that's why I said it's, it's like how science should be. Yeah. Right. We're, yeah. The game is not to, to just, you know, maintain your employment and like, you know, keep what you're doing. The game is to push things, right. And, and push things every day to, so you learn new things. That's the game. That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good interview. No, I loved it. Uh, Synaptic at its best is meant to link the people in neuroscience with the work that they do. I think I've succeeded in an interview if I can get the connection between a researcher and their work to reveal itself. But I'm not sure I've ever seen that connection be articulated as clearly as it was by Andre in this interview. Just a, a fascinating man. Thank you, Andre, for having me into your office and showing me around the lab. All right, this podcast will be archived at thetransmitter.org. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it. These are, of course, free. We do not put them behind a paywall. You can find Synaptic wherever you get podcasts and rate and review it there if you like. If you'd like to comment on this podcast or anything we do at The Transmitter, you can find us on Twitter and also on Blue Sky and Mastodon. Search The Transmitter and you will find us on those platforms. Some of the information for the intro was taken from the website for De La Salle College, Oakland's. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. That's all for me, and I'll let the music lead us out of here.
Yeah, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> I see. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I know just enough to be dangerous about okay. your, your work and your background. 